If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Arise now, ye tarnished, ye dead who yet live. The call of long lost grace speaks to us all. Hmm, grace. All the people that have been lost, all the homes destroyed and lands brought to ruin. Is that really what it's called? Grace? The Halleck tree is next, somewhere north. But not on the side of the mountain the Tarnished walked before, no, there must be another side to it. Exploring about the region brings them across something unexpected. Goldmask and Brother Corin. This doesn't seem to be a happy moment for them, though. Corin is unwaveringly loyal to the Golden Order, but Goldmask is relaying doubts as to the true nature of it. Perhaps it is not as all-powerful and encompassing as Corin would believe, not the whole answer to the many questions of life. And Corin views this questioning as a conceit of Goldmask. Something that he cannot overlook, but he doesn't know what to do. Who is he to question the relentless mind of Goldmask, and what is Goldmask trying to do here? What is he trying to put together? Well, the Tarnished cannot aid him in this crisis of thought, so they move on to continue their search for the Halig Tree. They have the two pieces to the elevator for it, but this search turns out to be a frustrating affair. They can't find any great lifts to use the Halig Tree medallion on. There aren't any other lifts to be used. So... Imagine their surprise when they go back to the main lift onto the mountain and discover a secret lift mechanism for the Halleck Tree Medallion because, of course, there's a secret mechanism. This takes them to the consecrated snowfield. It's hard to make heads or tails of anything, difficult to see ahead, and they're not even sure precisely what they're searching for. Presumably a massive tree of some sort. At the far end of the fields is a town, long abandoned, called Ordina. It was formerly a town of worship, now empty save an entrance to an ever-jail. Lights must be ignited around the Everjail to unlock the path forward. All the Tarnished has to contend with are invisible black knife assassins and Eric archers, neither of which are willing to let up once they have a target in sight. It's maddening how aggressive they are. Lighting each of the fires brings down the Everjail and opens up a path to a teleport. There's no great tree in sight, it's far too snowy to see far off in the distance, but that teleport is what guarded the way to the Halig Tree. In actuality, the Hallig Tree is off the coast of the mountain, just slightly disconnected, making it nigh unapproachable to an invading force, save by sea. This tree was planted by Mikala ages ago as a counterpart to his mother's air tree. He fed it his own blood, and the city of Elfail bloomed around it. The twins Mikala and Melenia went on to have a grand home all their own, with a mighty military force led by Melenia herself, the finest swordfighter in all the lands between. But during the Great War over the Elden Ring, Melenia went to war and fought General Radon. Neither could take victory, and in a moment of desperation, Melenia released her inner scarlet rot upon the territory called Kaelid. When she was brought back home, she was in a coma. She was laid at the roots of the Halig tree to heal, but without Mikula there to keep the tree healthy, her rot seeped into the tree, much like Godwin's body did to the air tree. Now scarlet rot infests Elfael and its inhabitants. The Halig tree is sickly. The one called Loretta is here, no longer a knight in service to Queen Renala. She left the region of Liurnia to find a home for the people called the Albernarics, the artificial beings created by the Academy that were mistreated, enslaved, and abused. Loretta is now a knight of the Halig Tree and intercepts the Tarnished when they approach the entrance of the city. But Loretta cannot stop them here, try as she might. This is where the mighty knight finds her end, at the walls of her new home. Elfail must truly have been a work of pride for the twins of Marika and Radigan. Overgrowth has come to it in its master's absence, however, and rot has begun to work its way up. The roots of the great tree snake through the lower halls now. Some have burst through the sides, opening up passageways through what was once water sources. 
Now the water is infested through and through. In the depths of the city, lying beside the roots of the hallowed tree, they find her. The mighty Melania, still resting peacefully. But the approach of the tarnished is enough to awaken her. She's lost so much of her body to the rot. Yet as a demigod, it's not so simple that she just dies. She's lingered here for so long, dreaming of her flesh churning dull gold. Her blood rotted. She dreamt of her battles and the corpses left in her wake. Dreams she had while awaiting Mikala's return. She readies herself and draws her blade, warning the tarnished that she has never known defeat. Melenia is a proper display of patience, finesse, and brutality upon the moment. If caught in one of her flurries, it's a quick death. If one is inattentive, she will draw blood and take healing from it. If one is unwilling to dance with her, she will strike their guard and take healing from it. Melenia was not trained by her father. Her mother had little to do with her. She was born a cursed, rotted thing that could not force people to adore her like her brother Mikola could. Melenia was trained to fight by a blind swordsman who conquered and sealed away an outer god. Thus, she became the greatest fighter in the lands between. When her health is brought low, Melenia refuses to yield. Just as she did with General Radon, Melenia rises and calls upon the rot infesting her. Though this time, she does not loose a mad rain of scarlet rot about her, instead she controls it. She takes it within herself and she becomes a goddess of rot. Melenia has lived a hard life. She's lost limbs, fought wars, survived this terrible disease that so ravaged her. Yet even after all this, and having just awoken from a dream years long, she is the fiercest that the Tarnish has faced, and she wields her rot with complete mastery about the arena. Perhaps better that her father Radigan had so ignored her, he may have trained her to be a lesser fighter than she is. Perhaps her red hair was too great a reminder of Ronnie, perhaps too great a reminder of himself and what he really was. But this day, Melania tastes defeat for the first time. She honorably fades from the field, acknowledging her own defeat. Her last words are apology to her dear brother for her failure. Hopefully, somehow, Mikola is able to hear Melania's words, but something most peculiar takes place within the arena. A scarlet Aeonia blooms within it. It is said that when it blooms a third time, Melania will become a true goddess. Well, once against Radon, once during their fight, the bloom of the Scarlet Aeonia is a grand depiction worth noting, is Melania in there, awaiting her third bloom? It pains them to say it, but the Tarnished rather hopes that it is true, and that Melania should have her life restored, and they pray that she finds a happier future, one better than the one dealt to her under her mother's rule. That frightening man, the one back in round table, that was covered in armor adorned with broken omen horns, he's here, in that fetid back room. Round table law forbids them from attacking him, even though every instinct they have says that this man needs to be killed. Upon approach, he kicks up conversation. You have felt the curse, he says, and they're not really sure what curse he's talking about, until he remarks about his seed bed being ripe. So, this is the dung eater. Makes sense. This is the terrible creator of the seed bed curse found around the lands between. The Tarnished has found a number of them, but they didn't realize that he was the one who cultivated them. The urge to kill him is only growing stronger. He wants them to unshackle his corporeal flesh, find his physical body. To be projecting himself here does convey that he has some power, but what's his goal here? His body is beneath the capital city in the sewers. The Tarnished has business there, they couldn't find the entrance to it their first sweep through. Shabruri had told them to find something down there, related to the three fingers and a flame. Now their purpose for finding it is twofold. His parting words are that of a threat, or 
a promise that he can kill them and defile their corpse. Oh buddy, this just jumped to the top of the tarnished list of things to do. They beeline for Lendell and begin their search. The upper reaches are cleared, it makes more sense to look in the lower levels of the city for a way into the sewers, and eventually they find where that key is meant to go. Within a well is a path that leads to the underground, where the secrets and filth of the city resides. Moog and Morgoth were not the only omens of the land, no. There are lesser ones within these subterranean shunning grounds. They were used as fodder in the world above, or forced here underground. Human corpses litter their roads, giant rats squirm about, big toxic plants, imps, basilisks, finger creepers, a revenant, they and so much more call this place home sweet home. And getting through the labyrinth system is a feat in itself. Not only is this place a death trap, but it's cruel and diseased. A rhythmic pounding and the sound of a man in distress grabs the attention of the tarnished. Beyond a gate is the undeniable one called Dung Eater. This gate, it certainly isn't strong enough to keep him here, no. It's there to keep people out. Yet, the Dung Eater screams to be let out, beating his head frantically against the wall. He needs to eat, he needs to defile. He fully knows and acknowledges what he is, and he revels in it. Yet, he gave the Tarnished the key to his own cell, so what's his game here? While the urge to kill him is still powerful, the Tarnished will see through this story. They prompt the Beast to leave his jail, and then he plays his hand out. He will kill again, and he'll defile every corpse he creates. They will be cursed, never to return to the air tree once they die, cut off from the greater will. Alright, so he wishes to defy this outer god. It's hard to pass judgment on that. His methods are worthy of harsh reflection. But to be cursed would be as becoming an omen. If all were the same, then no one would be a lesser, no one would be dominant. He speaks harshly and violently, but he's honest, forthcoming. Unlike so many the Tarnish has met before, his words are harrowing, though, cursing bloodlines forever to come. They return to Roundtable to perhaps speak with the calmer projection of Dung Eater and not the one slamming his face into a wall, but he's not there. Rather, he's left a note behind, promising to defile them and extending an invitation to meet him at the outer moat of the capital city. Well, high and low they search, but the only person they find in the outer moat is a fellow that they'd met back in Liurnia. He'd stolen something from that strange girl, Rhea, and then this fellow called Blackguard Big Bogart and the Tarnished became friendly acquaintances. They bonded over their love of seafood. Well, now he's here with some crab from the looks of it. But if the Dung Eater is prowling about, they feel like Bogart needs a warning. But actually, it's Bogart that warns them, because he knows of the Dung Eater. They were in prison together, and this big, boisterous, daring fellow is absolutely terrified of him. His voice quivers at the mention of him, like the memories of what he'd seen the Dung Eater do to others was too much for him to put to words. He is a true monster, and he warns the Tarnish to stay the hell away from him. He's seen signs of the Dung Eater about, he knows that he is near. The Tarnished enjoys a meal with Bogart before dashing off to search some more, but when their luck plays out, they go back to check on the Blackguard, only to find that the Dung Eater has found him first. He's not quite dead. And he begs of the Tarnish to kill him before the Dung Eater can, before he can curse his body and his soul. To ensure that this cannot happen, the Tarnish delivers a killing blow to Bogart, saving him from the Dung Eater's torment. And then, he appears as an invader, to defile the Tarnished. Though he's dangerous, he's not a great threat to the Tarnished. Perhaps once upon a time he may have been, but certainly not now. He's an easy enough opponent to end. But that was just his projection, his invasion. His corporeal body is still out there. Well, no sense in wandering about. They go back to the round table once again, 
and that dark projection of the dung eater has returned, sitting calmly in a pool of blood, waiting for the tarnished. He's a bit surprised that they were able to ward him off. That's the first time somebody was able to do that. Through his twisted logics, he divines that the tarnished is just like him. They are both the dung eater, and that it is he that must receive the blessing of the curse next, until a cursed ring coalesces that may one day defile order itself. Soon all his defilements and cursing will pay off when a generation of his creation will begin to be born. Some of those will go on to curse others as he has, for on and on, unending until all the world is covered in his pox and his curse. This is too far. They will see this through, but the Dung Eater will not see tomorrow. He tells them to return to his prison cell to see this out. The Tarnish doesn't waste a moment, they immediately run for that cell. In the dark pit of the Shunning Grounds, he's seen himself bound to a chair, unable to act against the Tarnished. He wants to play this game, he wanted seedbed curses, then he will have all of them. The Tarnished stuffs every seedbed they have into his body. And in the putrid darkness of the sewers, the Dung Eater screams and howls of his curses and death takes him. And left behind is a rune, just like Bia. This one, the mending rune of the fell curse. This foul life is finally over. His legacy in the hands of the Tarnished. Their business is not yet concluded here. There's still the matter of finding what Shabriri spoke of. Deep, deep into the earth goes the shunning grounds, intentionally built this way, yet the reasoning is not yet clear. The descent is long and difficult to make sense of. This was not meant to be easily traversable, but jolly cooperation makes every endeavor more approachable. In the deep pit of the sewers is an elevator leading the tarnished to a church, where Moog? Okay, no, no, Moog is dead. If the tarnished was to guess, this thing was a defense left behind by Moog either to make it seem like he was still here, that he hadn't broken out of the sewers, or it's here to guard something. It's definitely not as powerful as the real Moog, but God, it looks just like him, almost indistinguishable from him physically. A round two rumble with this supposed Moog is actually sort of fun, a bit of cutting loose after the dung eater business. It seems that behind this strange, undefined church's altar is a secret, a path. Kale. The merchant, his people, they were brought here, entombed alive by Merica. The Tarnished has met several of the nomadic merchants above ground, the few that managed to escape the culling. They've always been welcoming enough, some quite kind. Kale was the first semi-friendly face that the Tarnished met after they woke up. But long ago, the Golden Order rounded up the great traveling caravan, believing their kind to be a threat. They were without grace, and served something that was not the greater will. This was their fate. It's such a terrible, cruel thing to do. In their sorrow and pain, the nomadic people cried out for salvation, and though it never came, their pleas were heard. At the very far bottom of this massive tomb, the floor is false. It gives out under the weight of the tarnished, revealing below that of which Shabiri spoke. Hayeta is here, the young woman who consumed the Shabiri grapes, who proclaimed that she would be a finger maiden. The Tarnished assumed this meant she would serve the greater will and the two fingers, but oh, they were so wrong. Hyeta tells them to shed their belongings, to present themselves bare, and to greet what lies beyond the door ahead, the three fingers and flames of chaos. But this seems something worth giving thought to, not a decision to hastily make. For a while, the Tarnished sits to think this through. This could have consequences. During their reflection, Melina appears to speak with them. 
She asks them to cease in this, to deny the flame, its chaos, devouring life and thought. Melina argues that this world still has life worth saving, that the cycle of this world is one that should be repeated, and the flame would destroy all. The Lord of Frenzied Flame is no lord at all, to reside over a land devoid of life. Though they can't argue with her, the things that they've seen, the deeds of the demigods, the suffering and the torture, the sickness of this land, what exactly is Melina talking about? What beauty? The tarnished promise that they would see every potential thread to its end, regardless of the pain or the consequence. So, discarding Melina's warning, they proceed on to the Three Fingers. Within is what answered the cries of the nomadic people as they wasted and died. The Three Fingers, the harbinger of the outer god called the Frenzied Flame. Shabriri was their messenger, Hyeta the Path. It welcomes this tarnished inn and takes them gently into their grasp. The gift it bestows is the power and presence of the Frenzied Flame. The tarnished will be as the outer god's vessel, yet they still can choose. This can be undone through ventures and puzzling. The tarnished is not forced to pursue this path. It is merely an option before them. To mark this occasion and meeting, the tarnished will carry on their body the burns of a flame and their eyes will glow with the beauty of it. Hyeta will not survive to greet the day's end. She will indeed serve as the maiden to the tarnished, granting them power as Melina did. Melina will undoubtedly abandon the tarnished if they take this path in defying her will, but Hyeta will see them suffer no loss because of it. She asks of them to hear every cry of torment and despair that came at the hands of the greater will to take every sin and curse upon themselves and to melt it away. Then she fades into the flame, leaving them a few gifts in her wake. Now they are ready to light that cauldron, to face what is to come. Though they've not yet decided on the fate they would choose for the lands between, the Tarnished is ready to move on into the finale of it. Climbing the Forge of the Giants leads them to a small site of grace where they can meditate for their next step. The air tree must burn, but how to make it so is still a mystery. Melina had the answer to that, not them. Resting here, she once again appears. That the Tarnished bears the mark of the Frenzied Flame is a disgust to her. She believes them no longer fit. Though their journey ends here, the Tarnished is not moved by this. They've come to understand what the Golden Order represents, what Melina wishes to restore, the cycle that she wants to see repeated. The two may very well stand in opposition in the end. And here, at the end of the world, as her plans are perhaps beginning to fall apart, she resorts to threats against them. If they choose the flame, she promises that she will kill them, as recompense for aiding them. With no other way forward, alone in the cold, the Tarnished listens to the sound of the flame. Deep within the Forge of the Giants, the once docile flame springs to life. Melina will not act as the kindling to burn the Erd Tree. The Tarnished will. With the power of the frenzied flame within them, the Tarnished lights the Erd Tree ablaze. The way to the Elden Ring will not be withheld much longer. Within it, they will decide what sort of lord they will be. To see this to completion, the Tarnished gives themselves over to fuel the flame on. With their body, the Erd Tree will burn. But the tree is protected by the vessel of the Elden Ring, the Eternal Queen Merica. Even the flame of the forge cannot burn away those thorns. No, something more will be needed. But surprise, surprise, the Greater Will is not an unacting force. When Merica shattered the Elden Ring within her, she was punished and imprisoned for that cardinal sin. The burning of the air tree is another of these sins. And for this deed, the Tarnished awakens within the crumbling Farum Azula. They were sent here for a reason. Now time to find what it is. 
Hear the ancient dragon drum alongside their beastmen kin and others who have committed sins against the Golden Order. It's a place long lost to the lands between, sequestered within a great uncontainable storm. It's a place for the daring, the mad, and the punished. Amongst these ancients are the fearsome godskin duo who turn their blade upon all who do not share in their worship of the Gloam-Eyed Queen. They who desire the death of the Outer Gods. The creatures that stalk the broken roads and paths of Farum Azula can easily cascade down if left unchecked, or overwhelm any tarnish that isn't content in fleeing. But there's no sense in letting pride dictate these things. Sometimes it's better to just run the hell away like a hero. Oh, to have seen Farum Azula in its prime. Perfectly in line with the legacy of Merica and her kin, it's a shadow of its former self. But still, it's a spectacle. Many of the broken-down walls are lined with what looks like the bones of ancient dragon kin. Another tarnished who's joined in jolly cooperation guides the tarnished down to a peculiar spot, a hollowed-out burial mound found fallen away from the main structure. They never would have even noticed it had they not pointed it out, and their companion tells the tarnished that it looks like a good nap spot. Oddly specific, but okay. Resting here causes something most amazing. Time seems to slow, it loses meaning, it reverses. The crumbling walls of Farumazula come back together, then submerge into the heart of a tornado. When the Tarnished opens their eyes, Farum Azula is whole again, and before them is the lord of this land from primordial times, the dragon lord Placidusax, who predates the Air Tree, Merica, the Greater Will's presence in the Lands Between. He ruled before his unnamed god fled the Lands Between. Awaiting his return, dragon lord Placidusax slumbered away from the world, and in his absence, the Greater Will saw an opportunity and began to plot and plan. But Placidusax no longer has a place in this world, his god will never return. And even if they should, Placidusax is crumbling away, the same as Verumazula. His skin rots, only two of his heads remain, and though he is the Dragon Lord, he is not the ruler that he once was. The Tarnished puts the aged Dragon Lord down, ending his slumber, delivering a death blow to the old age of the dragons. New ages must come, and the former lord of these lands will have no place there. At the end of their journey here, the Tarnished discovers the last of Merica's secrets. They knew him as Garonk, a pitiable creature that they tended to for their lost friend, Dee. They delivered to him Deathroot from across the lands, but he was never satisfied. Now, he's here, and he curses at them that he will not have destined death stolen from him again. This beast clergyman fights with a desperation unlike what the Tarnished has seen before, as though his entire existence was meant for this and it's maddening to him. There never was a preconceived notion about Garonk. He always presented himself as lethally dangerous and not something to turn one's back on, but he never seemed evil, so he has his reasons for attacking. At the midpoint, it all becomes so much more clear. The Beastman asks of death, that which he no longer holds as warden, to become his blade once more. He plunges his weapon into the small gem, which holds what power remains from the fragment of the Rune of Death, drawing from it immense strength taking Malekath back to as he should be, the Black Blade of the Queen, the shadow to his Empyrean. Malekath fights on, wielding death magic itself against the Tarnished. How Rani pulled off the theft of destined death from Malekath so long ago, something he himself acted as the vessel for, is a baffling mystery. What magics and scheming did it require to obtain it from this Titan? Malekath fights with the speed of Melenia, the madness of Radon, and the aggression of Moog. After the Rune of Death was taken and Godwin murdered, Malekath was cursed by Merica to hunger for Deathroot forever. The insatiable need for it nearly drove him insane, and he was left as a shadow with no Empyrean. 
His purpose in life was gone, his hunger a constant reminder of his failure. At his end, he asks why they want death and death. What do they want to kill? But he will receive no answer. Malekith the Black Blade will finally have release from his eternal torment. Hopefully, he'll be free from America and whatever awaits him next. And now there is no vessel to hold the Rune of Death. Malekith held it within himself, and it's unbound. And with it, the Tarnish will see that the Aird Tree truly burns. Death will come to all. No longer will souls return to the Aird Tree as it burns to its core, and no longer will those thorns deny them entry. This is it. It's time to choose. When they awaken, they're back in Lendell, but everything has changed. The city is covered in the ash of the Aird Tree, its lower levels lost. Nearby is Brother Corrin, alone. Gold Mask is nowhere to be seen. His words are foreboding of the man that he so idolized. In the end, Gold Mask rejected the Golden Order. He sought his own way, a pitiable offense. But he's speaking in the past tense, so where is Gold Mask? The burning of the tree is more than Corrin can bear. He will discard his belongings and vanish, his fate left unknown, and his entire world shattered. Not far away, just up a hill, is the body of Gold Mask. He found his answers, saw into the depths of the Golden Order and deciphered Merica's secrets. He looked upon the greater will and saw it for what it was. He saw the flaws, the hubris, the conceit. He saw the laws of death tampered with. And in his revelations, Goldmask found perfection. He gave his life to create the mending room of perfect order. This doesn't feel great, but Goldmask made his choice. He died for what he believed in. So, it is an honorable death. Rest easy, bud. The Tarnished never did manage to find Bly. They searched high and low, but they never found him. There's still some time, so they leave the city one last time to try and find him. Nothing is amiss with E.G., so they go to look around Ronnie and Rena's rise. Outside his master's tower, he's there. The bodies of Black Knife assassins around him. Blythe has gone mad, but not by choice. For Blythe was held within an Everjail by E.G., when an Empyrean defies their destiny, goes against the greater will, their shadow loses their mind. Ronnie's actions have caused this, and she knew that it would. She left before the consequences with Blythe began. She left him imprisoned, left him to be handled by someone else, left him to rampage. The Blythe they knew is gone, replaced by this maddened, feral beast. The Tarnished has no choice but to kill him, to kill their friend. They weren't there for Dee, for Rogier. They never could find Blythe. So many lives they weren't able to save, so much death has taken place because of these uncaring demigods. So, goodbye Blythe. You deserved better than this. You deserved better than Ronnie. And E.G. suffers a terrible fate all his own after Blythe passes, killed by Black Knife assassins near his anvil. When Ronnie left, she said that she loved Blythe and E.G. This is a horrific display of that affection. One more time, they journey back to Roundtable, to find that it, too, now burns. The two fingers are posed and unresponsive, the finger reader dead, and all save Master Hugh and Rodrigo are gone now. Rodrigo wishes that she could convince Hugh to flee, but he's so bound to the round table that he can't, he won't. The burning of the air tree has freed him from America, but he still can't bring himself to do it, so Rodrigo will stay with him. He's become like family to her. Rodrigo won't abandon Hugh here. Their fates will be tied to whatever happens next. Gideon Offnir's absence from the Roundtable Hold isn't entirely surprising, but where he's gone to is. 
The Tarnished returns to Lindell to begin their ascent towards the tree, and Gideon is awaiting them below the chambers of the Queen. He's never withheld the truth of his nature. He too strives to be the new Elden Lord. And now the heavy lifting is complete. He says that Merica has high hopes for them, that none will take the throne. The Tarnished shall fight on like this for eternity, and under this banner he attacks. But oh Gideon, he is not a fighter, and he's quite aged. He's so confident that he will rule and become Elden Lord, so full of hubris that he thinks after all this he can challenge the Tarnished. Gideon Ofnir is cut down in a matter of moments, and his dying breath mocks that the Tarnished cannot be a lord. Ever faithful to the Golden Order, even at the end. While the Erd Tree burns away, there is yet another who has come to heed the call of grace. He holds the body of his dead son Morgant, but has no words as he passes into a flurry of gold. This is the first Elden Lord, this is Godfrey, and his companion Sarosh at his back. He's returned from the Badlands to take back the mantle of Elden Lord. Godfrey doesn't chastise, he doesn't explain, doesn't do anything but acknowledge what is happening and what role he has to play. He has been called back to the Lands Between for a reason, and he must heed that call. So now he will take up arms against them. During old wars, Godfrey was the mightiest fighter in all the Lands Between. He and his followers fought countless battles in America's name. If not for him, the Golden Order would not have taken such a firm hold over the lands. He lost his way, lost the blessing of grace when the wars ended, and he had no great foes remaining to fight. His nature could not be denied, so he was banished from the lands between by America to the Badlands. During their battle, Godfrey acknowledges that he cannot proceed and win as he is. His companion, Sarosh, has helped him sate his bloodlust helped him restrain the warrior within, but now that handicap must be cast aside. Godfrey tears Sarosh apart with his bare hands and lets his true nature out. He is Horalu, chieftain of the Badlands, and now he is here to truly fight. Horalu uses his hands to inflict pain. His stomps rend the earth itself, and his approach is more akin to stalking than a charge. This is the bestial strength that brought so much victory in Conquest America and the Greater Will. Whether he believed in their ideologies isn't certain, but he had faith in violence. Horalu would be a conqueror as Elden Lord, in a land already torn apart by it. Horalu dies at the foot of the air tree, mere steps from where his former wife is imprisoned. But with his passing, he encourages the tarnished that defeated him, telling them that they are befitting of a crown. Now for what's in that tree. Merica's body, the vessel of the Elden Ring, was broken during the shattering of it, and for her cardinal sin, she was imprisoned here. But so too was the other part of Merica, the part more loyal to the order of the Old World. Within Merica is another spirit, Radigan. When Merica shattered the ring, he tried to restore it at the same time, and now he will stand against the Tarnished. The father of Rikard, Radon, Rani, of Melenia and Mikala, he once waged a war against Lyurnia of the Lakes to the west against the Academy of Raya Lucaria until he saw their Queen Renala and fell in love. When Marika called upon him to return to the capital after Godfrey departed for the Badlands, he left a hole in Renala's heart. With Marika, their twins were born cursed, Melenia with scarlet rot and Mikala with the body of a child eternal. He never trained Melenia, never defied the Golden Order to truly aid Mikala. But now he fights to prevent change, to keep the status quo, to keep the Golden Order in power over a dead land to serve the greater will. Radigan of the Golden Order is unfit to continue on. Merica will be handled after. 
the Tarnished strikes down this other part of the Elden Ring vessel and whispers to Renala a soft apology as he fades. But the Greater Will itself will not relinquish the Elden Ring so easily. There is yet one more play to be had. From the body of Radigan of Merica, from the Elden Ring itself comes the vassal of the Greater Will, what was sent to the lands between so long ago as a shooting star, the Elden Beast. It's the embodiment of the Elden Ring, returned to form to stop this tarnished from usurping power from it. It quite enjoys having Merica as its vessel and under its control. For the Tarnished to take the mantle of Elden Lord would be to relinquish control to an unknown. The Elden Beast is slow and lumbering, wielding the power of the stars against its foes. Approaching it is necessary, yet it's difficult to do. The Elden Beast has massive range and its powers extend well beyond its initial impact. It will swim across its arena in dazzling golden starlight to flee danger. It will fly into the sky and make the grounds dangerous to tread on. But after this great journey, after all they've seen and been through, after all the great foes they've fought, this creature cannot stop the Tarnished. The Elden Beast is destroyed in its own playing field, bringing low the Greater Will's influence and bringing before the Tarnished the burden of a choice. Ronnie, Fia, Dung Eater, Goldmask, America. Each presents an option, a future for the land. If they are to sit as the Elden Lord, will it be overseeing the age of the Duskborn, where life and death blur and Godwin, the Prince of Death, is restored? Or is it the will of the Dung Eater to be carried out? Do they cast the blessing of despair over the land? All will live as omens and curses, all equal in their reviled existences. Perhaps instead they trust the works of Goldmask and his perfect order, where no god rules, for gods are no less fickle than man, no more war, no more power, nothing but order. Or shall things remain the same? Mend the Elden Ring, restore the Golden Order, reign as the new Elden Lord. Perhaps do things better this time around. Or is it Rani, the Lunar Princess, that has the answers? She will hearken an age of the stars where the lands will voyage for a thousand years under the wisdom of the moon. With the tarnished as her consort, Rani will bring a beautiful darkness to the lands. But what was done to their friends, the pain they saw in the faces of those who cling to life, the madness of religious fervor across the many sects in the lands between, all the destruction, subjugation, the mass slaughter, the sickening games. No. The Tarnished will see none of these things restored. They've seen the lands between and have judged them to be wanting. No one will rule, because nothing will be left. Everything will burn. So will come the frenzied flame, and they will be the Lord of Chaos. All sin, suffering, fracture, and curses will be cleansed. Damn them all. May hell take them. And if she should arrive one day, the one called Melina, to deliver destined death to the Lord of Chaos, then she is welcome to approach. And they'll be waiting to burn her too. <laughs>